Good morning. Can you hear me all right? I have no way of checking the microphone, of testing whether it's working. I just hope it is. But if you can hear me, then you're still here. And if you're still here, that means God isn't finished with you yet. And if you're still here, it means your work for his glory isn't finished yet. See, that's really the nub of today's story. There's two men that we meet, both imprisoned, both prayed for by the church, earnestly, fervently prayed for, and one is killed and the other is freed. James, the great apostle, the brother of John, is martyred quite early on in the story of the church. But Peter goes on for a while yet. Peter's wonderfully rescued from prison. One goes home to be with the Lord Jesus, and one goes home to be with the believers to work and serve for a little while longer. You see, they're experiencing what Paul came across, this tension that Christians live in, between wanting to be with the Lord Jesus and wanting to stay and live in this world and serve others and serve God. Paul says at the beginning of Philippians, a letter in the New Testament, um, Philippians chapter 1, 21, Paul says famously, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet which shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. See, we live in this tension, this tension that we pray through. We want to be with Christ and see him face to face, but we also want to live and to be with our loved ones and to serve God's people and to, to walk in this world, to breathe its air and to see each other. We want to live, but we also want to see Jesus. We live in that tension. Now that's the tension that's in this story and the thing that the church prays for. Um, so let's read it. Acts chapter 12. We're back in Acts after a little um, pause over Christmas and looking at prayer over the last few weeks. We're going to think about um, the early church again, getting back to the story. So Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be today and I'll read it bit by bit and we'll work our way through the story. See it was about this time, so Acts chapter 12 verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. It's around the Passover time. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Maximum security. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. These are dark days for the church. It has actually been mostly pretty happy until now. The gospel's been sending out concentric circles of blessing, of glory. First in Jerusalem and then to people from abroad who lived or travelled to Jerusalem. You've got the Samaritans and then the Ethiopian eunuch and then Peter travels down to Caesarea and he meets Roman Gentiles, people from far, far away. And the gospel is touching these people changing their lives as it goes out in concentric circles. And mostly it's been really good, really wonderful. But there have been little pockets of persecution. And this is another one, a really brutal one. Stephen was killed a few chapters ago. And now James, the first of the apostles, the first of the 12 to be killed for his faith is, is gone. James, the brother of John, 
one of the Sons of Thunder, who uh, is quite a big character in the story, uh, the stories of the Gospels. Well, he's gone, killed with the sword, probably beheaded, and he's out of the story. But it's, it's a sad day, but it's not the end of the world. As we read from Philippians, death for Christians really is sleep. Death for Christians is going to be with the Lord Jesus. And it's a real loss and a real grief, but we don't grieve as, as if we don't have any hope. Because one day we'll see James again. I mean, you and I in the flesh, we'll see him face to face. I don't know how much time we'll spend talking to him because we'll be in Jesus' presence and we'll want to see him most of all. But see, death for Christians, it's a grief. It's a really sad thing, but it's not the end. But there's work to do. The story quickly shifts, doesn't it, from James and the grief over his death and the church who presumably prayed for him as well to the church who's praying for Peter. He's locked up in prison around the time of the Passover, waiting for this trial that Herod, another King Herod, this is the grandson of the King, of the Christmas King Herod, who put all the babies to death around Bethlehem, the one who was chasing Jesus um, at his birth, different Herod from the one who, uh, who put Jesus on trial as well. That was Herod Antipas. I think he's the uncle of this Herod. So lots of Herods. You can go look up their family tree if you want. But they're all of a piece. They're all brutal, horrific men who live to please other people, not to please God, who live to please themselves, to grab hold of power for themselves by any means necessary. Brutal, often brutal means. And they hold on to power, but as we'll see, it doesn't last for very long. Anyway, Peter's under Herod's jurisdiction, maximum security prison, held there and presuming the worst. Jesus had told him back in the Gospels that he would be martyred as well, that he would follow Jesus in dying for his faith. And so perhaps he's sitting there waiting for it, thinking this is the time. He's been in prison before, he's been rescued before, but maybe now is the time. James is gone, maybe I'm next. And so the church is praying praying presumably for him to be released, praying for God to rescue him, praying for boldness to carry on without him if it does go wrong, praying fervently, earnestly. That's, if you've got a Bible there, chapter 12, verse five, that word earnestly is the same word that Luke uses when he's talking about Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. Jesus sweating drops of blood, praying fervently, breaking his heart, praying to God if this cup of suffering would pass from him. And yet, not your will, but mine. That's what Jesus prayed, praying that, that he'd be rescued, but that if that wasn't God's will, then that he would, he'd have the courage to face it. Praying that God's will would be done in his life, through his body, in his suffering. I wonder if that's what they're praying as well, but they're up all night praying. Let's see what Peter's doing. Let's carry on reading. Acts 12, verse six. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping. <laughs> sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, without a doubt, 
that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. He thinks it's a dream. He's so relaxed, so rested, so trusting of God that his future is in his hands, whether to live, it'll be service and living for God and for his people, or whether to die, well, that would be gain, like Paul said. That would be seeing Jesus face to face in that moment of death. He's so relaxed about that, his heart full of hope, perhaps, putting his hands into the, his soul into the Father's hands, that he falls asleep. Everyone else is praying fervently for him, but for himself, well, he's just trusting God and has a good nap. But soon this angel wakes him up, nudges him awake, chains fall off, guards are miraculously still asleep, even the ones who are guarding the, the door. The doors miraculously swing open, even the great iron gate into the city, and, G- and Peter walks from maximum security prison out into the cool of the night. And it's almost as if the, the cool of the night wakes him up. And he's thought it's a dream, it's a vision so far, but it's real. And he realises God has done this. It wasn't some prison break that the, um, the disciples worked out. It wasn't an inside man or some, somebody who's bribed it. It wasn't this time somebody from the ruling officials or in Herod's household who's taken a shine to Peter and tried to break him out. No, this is something that God does. Verse 17, later on, Peter's explaining what happened and he says to the people who are listening, describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He realises it's not a dream, it's real. I'm free. And what's the first thing that he does? He goes to church. He wants to be with God's people. And God has rescued him and he wants to go and share the news. So verse 12, we'll pick up the story. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. That's probably the Mark who wrote Mark's gospel. Um, Where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rodder came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. See, they're probably a quite a rich household. They've got a, a gateway at the front and maybe a courtyard and then the inner house. This was probably a place where the church met regularly, as in not just for rooted groups in the midweek and, you know, a dozen or so, but probably 30, 40, maybe 50 of them in a kind of house church, big place. They've got a servant as well called Rodder, um, and she meets Peter at the gate, hears his voice across the wall, and is so excited, so full of joy, that she runs away, forgetting to open the door and and let him in. And they don't believe her when she comes back and tells them. You're out of your mind, they told her, verse 15. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. We don't have time to get into guardian angels and that kind of thing, but but they still don't believe. They think it must be some supernatural appearance, but Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. The Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. That's a different James, by the way. Not the James who's just been killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. So tell him and tell all of the other Christians in Jerusalem that Peter's been set free that their prayers have been answered. But you see, they'd been praying really hard, presumably for his release, among other things, and then they can't believe it when it's happened. Have you ever experienced that? When you've prayed for something, and then it actually happens, and it kind of takes you by surprise. Well, for them, it's almost as if 
um, God has been quite playful with them. Do you feel the humour in the scene? They're praying and praying and praying and breaking their hearts and sweating and fervently asking God to rescue Peter or that he'll, his will would be done and there's a knock at the door. And Rhoda runs away without even opening it. She's so full of joy, she forgets to unlock the door and let Peter in and they just can't believe it. They don't really believe that God's going to answer their prayers. And so, okay, if you ever have somebody say to you, it's your faith that makes God listen to you or that makes prayers happen, that if you just could believe it enough, then it would really happen for you. Well, you can take them to this story and say, no, no, no. They're praying fervently, but they, they don't seem to believe that anything's actually going to happen. And then it does, and it takes them by surprise. And God is a playful God, a God who's full of humour, a God who leaves Peter standing at the door, chilly outside while they're all inside trying to work out what's happened, trying to make up all these explanations, and eventually they let him in. Peter comes and there's such a hubbub, it's at risk of waking the neighbours. And he says, be quiet, and explains what God has done. Explains that God had brought him out from the tomb. I don't mean the tomb, I mean the prison. But I wonder if you spotted any similarities here between the story of Jesus and the story of Peter. I think Luke brings them out really intentionally. Did you spot that as we went along? Parallels between Jesus' story and his followers' story? There's loads of them. It's at the Passover time. He's arrested by the Jews and by the officials, by a man called Herod. He's put on, or almost put on, public trial. He's not executed yet, but he's in between two um, soldiers. Jesus was in between two thieves. Um, and then he's rescued from this place that's locked from the outside and guarded by soldiers. Jesus was entombed in a place that was locked from the outside by a great big stone and guarded by soldiers. And he appears to a woman. Rhoda, in this case, Jesus appeared to Mary back in his story. And then she runs away, runs home to tell people the good news. And they don't believe her when she goes home. They didn't believe Mary and the other women when they told the disciples in the beginning that they'd seen Jesus alive. And they don't believe Rhoda when she comes back and tells them that Peter's alive and Peter's freed. You see, there's lots and lots of parallels in this story. What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us one thing, that Luke is a brilliant writer. Um, but it teaches us another thing, that disciples of Jesus, that followers of Jesus should be marked by the master. That your life should be patterned on his life. Sometimes that'll be intentional, that you'll try to be like Jesus. You'll pray to be more like him. You'll want to face suffering like he faced suffering. Place your spirit into the Father's hands. Place your life into his hands and trust him with the future, just like Jesus did. You'll pray and you'll want to and you'll work for and you'll ask others to help you be more like Jesus. But in other ways, it won't be something that you try to do, it'll just happen. I don't think Peter did anything in this story. Really, it's, it all kind of happens to him, doesn't it? God is the one who's active. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who miraculously brings him out from, from almost certain death, brings him to freedom and to life. I wonder if God's done that for you. I wonder if you've come to him and said, God, I don't want anything to do with that old life anymore. I've made a real mess of it. I want it to be dead and gone, and I want to be a new person. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing, giving people new life. You can do that. You can pray and ask him, and he'll come and do the wonderful work of salvation in your life, 
wonderful work of making your heart new, making you new from the inside out, beginning that, that work that he'll bring to completion on the day that you see him face to face. You see, our lives in salvation are patterned after Jesus. We die, the old us is gone, and we're rescued, rescued from the hands of all sorts of sins and powers and, um, and authorities that often squash us down and keep us captive. And well, for Herod, what is it? It's the opinion of others. He loves to please others. He likes to pretend he's the big man, he's the powerful man in charge, but really what he wants to do is, is please other people and keep on to his, keep a hold of his power. I wonder if you've been locked up with chains like that, chains of, uh, of sin, um, chains of stuff that you just don't want to do, but you almost can't stop doing, chains of being bound up by other people's opinions, chains of, um, of sickness, I don't know, whatever it is. Often it's, most often it's sin that drags us down. To be honest, that's true of each one of us, that it's sin that keeps us in this prison, that keeps us in darkness, away from God. And we need to cry out to him and ask him to come and give us hope. Ask him to, it's a strange way of putting it, but to kill the old you and to bring you with Jesus to new life, to salvation in him. That's sort of what happens to Peter, isn't it? That his old life is gone and his new life begins again. And that happened a while ago, before this story, when Peter started trusting in Jesus. But it happens in this story in a little instance in his life that everything seems dark, everything seems horrible, everything seems like it couldn't get any worse. And then God comes and rescues him. And sometimes that happens for us as Christians. Sometimes we're healed, literally, of diseases. Sometimes God comes and fixes a situation that we thought would never have a solution. Sometimes it feels like he works resurrection in a, in a relationship, like, like it could never have got better. Nothing on earth could ever solve that problem. But God comes along and does something you could never quite imagine. That you maybe even forgot to ask for in prayer because you just it just seemed so impossible. That is what happens here, isn't it? Peter puts his himself into God's hands and God answers the prayer of faithful Christians and brings him out. But don't forget James. Presumably they prayed just as fervently for him. And God said no to their prayer for rescue. God took him home to be with him. And that's something, like we said at the beginning, which, which really hurts. Would have hurt them, would have hurt John, James's brother, and their whole family. They would have cried bitter tears. But for a Christian, even when God says no to our prayers, prayers for rescue, prayers for healing, prayers for help, when God says, no, I've got another way. It's never a no and get out of the room, I'm abandoning you kind of a response. It's always a yes to something else. See, for James, it was a no to continued life here, but a yes to life with Jesus face to face. And if Paul's to be believed, if Peter's so at peace that he's asleep, if they're true, if, it, if their message is true that Jesus is alive, then it's true that death is gain. It's true that you don't have anything to fear. When God says no to those prayers that we pray fervently, it's always because he's got something better for us even in the face of death. That's the truth of the resurrection. That's the truth of what God works in the lives of those who are marked by the master, marked by the Lord Jesus. First, we're brought to life, to salvation in Jesus. And then he works that resurrection all the way through our lives, answering prayers in wonderful ways. But then ultimately, 
bringing us to, to new life in his resurrection after we've died into heaven and then back to the new heavens and the new earths in good time. Oh, let's carry on with the story. Um, so they've been praying for Peter while Peter was asleep, resting. And then Peter's rescued by God's hand. And what happens to Herod? Peter comes and explains what's happened. God has rescued him. And then in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had happened, what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and didn't find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Herod does what Herods do and kills these innocent men. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. You see what's going on? Herod's got some quarrel with some poor people from the north and they don't have enough food and he's withholding food from them. They have to bribe or kind of get themselves into Herod's household or somehow just to get enough food to eat. He's a horrible, horrible man. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people, so full of himself. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not, a, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod didn't give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Bit of a horrible end, isn't it? A fittingly horrible end for a horrible man who ended a lot of people. The word of God. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Do you see how the stories come full circle? How it started in grief for the Christians, squashed down there in the darkness. And Herod's up here, lording it over everybody, wearing fancy clothes, doing whatever he wants, trying to please everybody, being the big man, the, the one who has all the glory. Christians crushed and Herod exalted. And in the end, who's really in charge? In the end, who's really holding the power? Is it the powerless Christians whose only power is prayer? Or is it the powerful Herod who can do anything he wants with the lives of those people around him? Well, it seems to our eyes, day by day as we watch the news, day by day as we pray our prayers, day by day as we look around at our lives, it's the powerful men who hold the power and what can we do against them? Well, don't you forget, don't you forget that every Herod dies and stands alone before the Lamb of God who sits upon the throne. Can I read you a, a poem? That's the last line from it. We think of him, of Jesus, as safe beneath the steeple or cosy in a crib beside the font. But he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. For even as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on that road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. Whilst Herod rages still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs are slaughtered by the men of power, and death squads spread their curse across the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb upon the throne. That's what we're to remember as Christians. That's what this story teaches us, is that those who are marked by the Maker... Those who seem crushed and with no power in this world, no power but prayer, it's the, only, it's the only power that the powerless possess. Those who seem lowest of the low, well, if they're with Jesus, then they have power to end all powers on their side. 
And one day he'll show it. One day he'll bring down those who oppress. One day he'll bring down those Herods who kill and destroy and think that they're answerable to nobody. One day justice will be done and God will raise up those who are crushed. Raise up those who are poor in spirit. Raise up those who are grieving. Raise up those who have nothing. And he'll bring down all of those who've caused that pain and struggle. So you can take courage. When we pray for brothers and sisters, Christians in places like North Korea, when you get reports from countries where they've had to change the names of people, like places like North Korea, where if you're a Christian and you're found out to be a Christian, you're either executed pretty much straight away or sent to a labour camp where you're worked to death. We don't know the names of Christians in their thousands who died in North Korea. It used to be one of the most Christian nations in Asia, and now there's so few left. We don't even know their names. But when we pray for countries like that, who are ruled by rulers who seem to have absolute power, well, we can pray with real confidence that every Herod dies and stands alone before the Lamb of God who sits upon the throne. Jesus is the one who's really king. That's that creates lots of questions for us, doesn't it? Why does he let suffering happen? Why does he let James be killed so brutally and yet rescue Peter so wonderfully? Why does he let that person I love die and that person over there be healed? Why did they get that job and not me? Why do they have that and, and not us? Why am I going through this and not them? You see, it leaves us with all sorts of different questions. Why would the king do what he does? But don't forget, he's a good king. He's the king who's died for us, who's been willing to suffer for us. And so when we suffer, he suffers with us and we suffer with him. We share the fellowship of his sufferings. And so we can do that with joy, knowing that if we depart like James did, then we'll be with him and it'll be worth it. Or that if we stay, then it'll be to serve him. So I wonder if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who's marked by the master, if your life has been ended and, and reborn in Jesus, if you're somebody who calls on him in prayer fervently, if you're somebody who wants to serve him, what is it that you're going to do this week? What is it that he's left you here to do? What is it that you're going to do with the rest of the time that you have and the breath in your lungs? Who is it that you can speak to? This word that flourishes and grows. See, Herod speaks, lifts himself up, but his word comes to an end. The flower flourishes, the grass of the field grows, but, but eventually the wind blows and they're no more. But the word of God stands forever. I wonder if you'll be a person of the word, somebody who's marked by the master, who lives to serve and love and give yourself away for other people. What is it that he'd like you to do with the rest of your life? I wonder if we could pray about that as we end. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are this God who is so mysteriously big and powerful that you help us to deal with suffering. Lord, we have so many questions. We don't know why James was taken home and Peter was left. Lord, we don't know the answer to all of, all of those hard questions we have about suffering, but we do know that you are the God who loves us. You're the God who has the power and one day will wield that power to bring justice to make everything sad come untrue, to bring resurrection to all things. Lord, we trust you and we love you. That that's, that's who you are. You're our God. You're our Father. 
Lord Jesus, you are our saviour, our master. Holy Spirit, you are the, the one who comes to love us and bring joy. So we ask that you would answer our prayers. Help us to pray fervently, Lord, for those around the world who are suffering, for those in our own families, on our streets, our neighbours, in our church who are struggling. Lord, we ask that you'd hear our prayers for them and that you'd heal and rescue. But Lord, we pray that your will would be done. And whatever it is, we ask that you'd help us to be faithful to you, that you would leave your mark on us as those who follow you, our master, and that you teach us to be people of the word and make that word in our lives, in our church, in our country, Lord, in our words, world, that your word would be bearing fruit and growing and flourishing as it did at the beginning. Lord, would you build your church and build it in us and through us for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.